Well, we are done with the book of John. We have spent four months looking at Jesus' final ministry. Uh, and the whole point, again, of that sermon series was that Christ, again, had early on in the book of John said, it's not time, it's not time. And then he said, now it's time. And we looked at all of the things that Christ committed to, how he committed to his disciples, how he committed to loving and caring for those individuals. We saw how Christ committed ultimately to the plan of God, which was a plan of redemption and a plan of salvation, uh, and that Christ was going to commit himself to the cross and then ultimately commit himself to the resurrection, validating and proving everything that he had said. And then last week, we had a chance uh, to close out uh, the Easter season, to close out the message as Jason spoke to us uh, about Peter uh, and how even at the very end, Jesus's ministry there, you know, took Peter uh, and he committed himself to reminding, restoring and readjusting the focus of Peter and saying, would you fish feed and follow. And isn't that the story of so many of us, you know, the seasons of ups and downs in our lives, but Christ is, continues to think of us and challenge and forgive us and say, continue to be a part of my ministry and, and my glory and my kingdom, even though none of us deserve any of that. So that's what we, we've spent the last four months looking at. And so now what's going to happen is we're going to take a look at the book of Hebrews. And we're actually going to kind of flip now to the opposite side and said, if this is what Christ has committed to, if he was willing to go through all of this for us, why do we now commit to Christ? And so the book of Hebrews is looking at this idea of all the things in this world that we could chase after and follow after. And the author is explaining to us this, this is why we follow Christ. This is why Christ is better than anything else we could imagine in this world. And so that's why we've titled this Better Than Christ Above All Else. So as we work through uh, this book over the next several months, again, that's our intention, is that now we walk away saying Christ committed to us. And so here's why I'm now committing to Christ, because again, anything that I look at in this world is, is going to pale in comparison to the great glory of knowing Christ as our Savior and Lord. Now, Hebrews is, is uh, the, the only book where we really don't have a good sense of scripture of who the author is. People speculate, is it, is it Paul? Is it Barnabas? Is, is it Apollos? Is it somebody else, one of the disciples that have written to it? And, and again, scholars are really not sure at all who, who wrote it. Uh, and so I think this is one of the things where for some of us, we go, we just have a book with no author. It, it seems disingenuous. It seems, you know, perhaps a little speculation there. But, you know, if God has chosen to, to not allow us to understand, then I don't think we need to get bogged down into who, who wrote this book or who didn't write this book, as well as the fact that as we look through the book of Hebrews, you know, theologically, there's certainly nothing that's going to contradict anything that Christ has said. Again, the whole point, the author is pointing us to who Christ is. Um, and scholars tend to put this book somewhere between, you know, 60 to 70 AD, perhaps more the, the latter side, as he goes through, he explains the persecution that begins to happen to the various Christians that are out there. 
Um, and at this point, there's some Christians, some followers of Christ that have maybe been uh, having second thoughts about this decision that they made. Should I continue uh, in, 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 my, in my quest to seek after him and endure all of what's happening? And again, this was a time period now in Roman history and in Christian history where Christians are beginning to get persecuted, uh, as well as the fact that there's still some reference to the temple and ceremony. So we think that the, the second temple is yet to be destroyed, which will be destroyed in 70 AD uh, by the Romans. So that's kind of why we, we see this in terms of the, the time frame. Um, and primarily, as we go through the book of Hebrews, we also really kind of see that he's really addressing a lot of the Hellenistic Jews, that many of these Jews that have chosen to follow Christ, that have now been scattered throughout the Roman Empire, um, and they're being challenged to now live in a place that's no longer the confines of Jerusalem, right? It's no longer this hometown that they had, but as the persecution has spread and spread them all over, they're now living in various different communities. They're now living in cities that are full of all kinds of idols and, and paganism, and, and their understanding of faith in Christ is now being challenged in a way that perhaps Jerusalem was not challenging them as much. And so they're having to wrestle and struggle with, again, what does this look like? Some of them, again, wondering, is this really worth it? Some of them beginning to perhaps compromise and blend the Christian faith with all of these other pagan religions that existed out there. Some of them perhaps falling into the materialism and the economic wealth of some of these Roman cities. Okay? And so, again, the author is addressing these individuals that we see scattered throughout, uh, and as persecution mounts, you know, is Christ worth it? Is Christ really worth following in the end? Uh, and, and so that's what he wants to address. And so as the author is pointing them back to the one true faith, and as Jason and Dave and I sat down and as we, we talked through this, I like the way that Jason kind of talked about Hebrews. He said, it's really as if the author is interpreting the Jewish history through the lens of Christ for them. They, they still don't seem to understand that all of their past was looking towards this, right? Old Judaism was looking forward to the coming Messiah, and now the author is saying, old Judaism has to pass away, and it has to give to new life in Christ. And now we look back at our history, and we look back at our faith, and say this was the Messiah that has been promised to us the entire time. Okay, And so, again, he, he's causing them to, to recollect and think over this. So as we go through, again, Christ is better. Christ is going to trump anything in this world that we could ever imagine. Um, and as we, as we work through this more and more, again, our hope, my desire is, is that the things that we're still holding on to in this world, whether as believers or unbelievers, that we would be willing to let go more and more and realize that total faith, complete dependency, has to be in Christ and Christ alone. And the benefit of doing that is a life of joy and is a life of hope and, and bliss and happiness that we can look forward to. Okay, so that's again the intention here as we, we establish what we're trying to do here. Now, 
Understand that as we go through this, because as I said, there's going to be a lot of Jewish uh, terminology that we're really going to kind of have to dive into the Jewish culture to really flesh this out for us. Because again, probably most of us here do not know a lot about Jewish culture or experience, you know, a Jewish lifestyle. So we're going to have to flesh a lot of that out as we go through. So if you're kind of going through and you're like, man, we're really talking about what it means to be a Jew, that's, that's, that's why we have to do this, because that's the way the author works through these scriptures here, okay? So if you have the Bibles, you guys can open up to Hebrews chapter 1. We're going to work through Hebrews chapter 1, uh, verses 1 through 4, and then we'll, we'll go through the rest, of the, uh, the rest of the scriptures there. All right, there we go. All right, so here we go. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1. Uh, it says, In the past... God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things and through whom he has made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he's provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And so he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. Okay, so in the Old Testament, one of the primary ways that God spoke to his people was through the prophets. Okay, and if you're not sure what a, what a prophet is, a lot of times we think is the prophet is like the, the fortune teller. He's going to tell us what's going to happen. And don't get me wrong, that is certainly a part of what prophecy is and what a prophet did. But we also have to understand that a lot of the primary job of the prophets was to speak to the people on behalf of God, right? So they would have gotten a message from God that God wanted to communicate to his children and to the people of Israel. And a lot of times when God spoke to the prophets, it usually wasn't very good news that God had spoken to the prophet and saying, listen, I have a warning here of judgment. I have a warning that if these people do not turn away from their sins and repent, there's going to be some dire consequences for what ends up happening. Okay? And, and so because of that, a lot of times prophets were not very well liked in the scriptures. Uh, even prophets today, people that have prophet, you know, prophetic tendencies, tend to be the people that we don't often like because they're the ones that are calling out the sin in our life and saying, hey, you better get your act together or something worse is going to happen here. Um, and so when we look at, at the Old Testament, there's a huge chunk of the scriptures that are devoted to the major and to the minor prophets. People like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Jonah, Amos, Zechariah, all of these were prophets, people that God had spoken to and said, here's what I need you to communicate to my people. And Prophets, again, were a very big deal, uh, respected in one sense, disliked in another sense. And usually you could tell if a person was a prophet because in the scriptures, again, a lot of times it usually said something along the lines of the Lord says and then whatever it is. So let me give you a couple examples here. Um, Ezekiel 3.11, it says, Go now to your people in exile and speak to them. Say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says, whether they will listen 
or fail to listen. Zechariah 1.3, Therefore tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you. Jeremiah 14, 14, Then the Lord said to me, The prophets are prophesying lies in my name, and I have not sent them out or appointed them or spoken to them. And Malachi 3, 5 says, So I will come and put you on trial. I will be quick to testify against sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, against those who defraud laborers of their wages, who oppress the widows and the fatherless and deprive the foreigners among you of justice. Do not fear me, says the Lord Almighty. So, again, it seems very easy that anybody could have got up and just started saying, well, I'm a prophet, and here's what the Lord said, and could have just started spouting all kinds of information. But God had a protection for that in the scriptures, that when we look in the Bible at Deuteronomy 18, here's what it says. It says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put word, my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything that I command him. I myself will call to account anyone who does not listen to my words that the prophet speaks in my name. But a prophet who presumes to speak in my name anything I have not commanded, or a prophet who speaks in the name of other gods, is to be put to death. You say to yourselves, how can we know when a message has not been spoken by the Lord? Well, if what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord does not take place or come true, that is the message the Lord has not spoken. And that prophet has spoken presumptuously, so do not be alarmed. So prophets were a very big deal, because if you failed to heed to what the prophet was saying, God said there is consequences and there is wrath and danger coming for you. And at the same token, if somebody proclaimed to speak on behalf of God, and they were not speaking on behalf of God, then God would deal with that person to the point where he says, you put those people to death because there is not anybody that I want speaking on my name if I've not told them to speak on my name. And you can tell whether a prophet is true or not because if they prophesy and it doesn't come true, well, then you know they were not a prophet from me and they need to be put to death. So these were some pretty big words here that if you were going to speak on behalf of God, you better be sure that what you spoke was going to happen and you had that respectability among the people. So prophets were, again, a very, very big deal in terms of the Old Testament and in terms of the people of the prophets. And I know that was a lot to kind of set the stage here of understanding this, but the author says that the prophets spoke to us in various times and in various ways, right? He said, this is how I used to communicate to you. But he says, now, in the last days, the last days referring to when Christ is coming, when he's going to return, all right, I am speaking to you through my son. So I, I, I gave the prophets the message, but now the message that you need to listen to is the message that comes through my son, Jesus Christ. And the message that we have is a better message. And so what is the message that he lays out here in these first four verses? Well, the first thing he says is this. He says, Christ is a better messenger because he is the supreme ruler. So when he talks about him, he says, look, he says, God's son is heir to all things. He, he is heir to this entire world. He is the heir to this universe. He is the one that is to inherit all of the things from his heavenly father. And he says, 
Christ was there in the creation of the world, from north to south, from east to west, from past to present. Christ is the creator of this world, and Christ is the sustainer of all of this. That he is the very one that holds our lives in existence. That again, that any moment, our lives could be snuffed out by him removing the oxygen from this world. It, it, is, it is Christ is the one who offers the rain from the heavens that gives life to the flowers and the plants. He said, this is the powerful supreme ruler that we serve. The prophets could never do any of that unless God had allowed them to do that on a temporary basis. The second thing is that he says, he says, look, Christ is also the supreme representation. He said, this prophet spoke on my behalf, but they were not the representation of what God was. They were a representative of God and spoke his words, but not the exact representation of who God was. Remember in the scriptures when, when, when Moses had a chance to see the glory of God as, as God passed through? and his face shone, it radiated the glory of God. It's like the sun. The sun radiates the light that comes from it, and that's what hits our eyes. But see, the difference between Moses and Christ here, between the prophets and, and between Christ, is that Christ is not simply reflecting the glory of God. He is the glory of God. He is God himself. And so when it says the exact representation, the, the wordplay there is actually as if they had taken a coin in the Roman world and stamped the image of a Roman emperor's face on the coin. He said, that's what you are getting with Christ. He is the exact representation of the very essence and the very being and the very character and the very power of God himself. That is why Christ is superior to the prophets. And then he talks about Christ being the supreme savior, right? Because the prophets came, and I'm offering you a message here to save you from the wrath that is coming. But Christ is the superior savior of all things. Remember back in Luke chapter 5 when um, the man was paralyzed and they brought him to Christ? And they're having this conversation, and Christ says to the man, he, he says, your sins are forgiven. And they're like, nobody can forgive sins except God himself. And then he says, oh, you're confused that I can forgive sins. And so he tells the man to get up and walk to validate that, again, he has the power to forgive sins. Well, that's the same thing that the author is communicating here. Because he says to him, he says, he, he provides purification, and then he sat down at the right hand of God. Right? We, we've just spent all of this time talking in the book of John of how he gave up his life and the shedding of his life covered over our sins. That was his purpose, to come and die. But the idea that he sits down at the right hand of God, what does that now mean? It now means that the finished work of God has been had. Because now Christ can rest. It's just like when God created the universe and on the seventh day, what did he do? He rested. He rested from his creation. And that's what the author is communicating here. That, that Christ has come, 
He has paid the penalty for our sins. Our sins have been washed clean. And it is over and done with for now and all of eternity. And so there he took his place at the right hand of God. And so God, the author is saying, listen, I, I used to speak in all kinds of ways. And I used to speak primarily through my prophets. But you don't need the prophets anymore. Because now you have the son who is the final author of my message. And he sat down and he's done doing what he needs to do. And so if he is a better messenger, then the message that he also brings is a better message for us. That the invisible God has become visible in the representation of Christ. And the message, again, is superior than anything else that you could imagine. So, so to the Jews, he's saying, if you're still hanging your hat on the prophets, if you're still looking for them to talk about a coming Messiah, that Messiah has already come, and it's Jesus Christ. Now, he's not done yet in the first chapter here, because right at the end there, he tacks on this idea about the angels. And the angels were another group of individuals that would often have some sort of message for the people of God. And so in the scriptures, we see a couple, a couple different times here. And again, these are just a couple here. But we see that the angels intermediated. The, the angels got into the affairs of man, right? In Genesis, the angels were there at Sodom and Gomorrah and Matthew. And, uh, the angels were there at the tomb, right? When the ladies show up and, and they're like, what are, you, what are you looking for? Christ isn't here. Uh, and even in the book of Revelation, as John is speaking... He says, I am the one who heard and saw these things. Again, speaking of the end times. And he said, when I heard it and seen them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had been showing them to me. But he said, don't do that. He said, I am a fellow servant with you and your fellow, fellow prophets with all who keep the words of the scroll. Worship God. Okay, so that's just a little bit of understanding of how the angels were working. Okay? But um, we have also historically, we have a group of people uh, that existed in what was known as Qumran. Uh, and after the Greeks had, had ruled the Middle East and were in control, the Jews rebelled and they had this period of, of freedom. And then the Romans came in and took them over. Well, during this time period, after the Greeks and through the Romans, a lot of these Jews began to break off into different groups. And one of these groups, the Essenes, essentially moved to this area of Qumran, this part of kind of the northern part there of the Dead Sea, and began to live in their own community. And what was different about them was, again, they renounced all sort of wealth and materialism. They basically said, communally, we are going to focus our devotion on God. Everything that we do is going to be to support and love and care for Christ. And everything we do is going to be to follow the words of God. 
And so they reject all of this. And at this time, you also had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were the two great religious uh, Jewish secular uh, Jewish groups that existed. And they basically looked at them and said, no, 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 you guys got it all wrong. You're not living the way that, the, that God actually wants you to live. And they actually saw themselves as the true and inheritors of the priesthood, right? So, uh, you know, we have the line of the priests through Levi and Aaron. They basically said, we are the ones that should be inheriting the priesthood. We are the ones that got all of this right. And back in 1946, 1947, again, you may remember about the shepherd who throws a rock into the cave and he hears a pot shatter. And we find what becomes known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. All of these parchments and fragments of scripture, you know, we're talking thousands of them that prove to us that these documents are extremely reliable. Well, they didn't just have pieces of scripture from the Bible, but they also had a ton of these other pieces of what we would say is non-biblical or non-canical scriptures. That they had these other writings that we would not accept to be biblical, but gives us an understanding about people's beliefs and, under, and, and viewpoint of the community that existed. So we have what's known as the Angel Scroll, uh, and in terms of the angel scroll, uh, it dealt largely with um, the protection that the angels uh, had offered uh, and details about them and how the angels related to the different community. Uh, the book of First Enoch and the book of, uh, the book of Watchers dealt a lot with the archangel Michael as the ultimate protector of the Jewish people. And the book of Jubilee uh, also said that there was a special connection with the angels and the angels had this like hierarchy in heaven that existed and how that hierarchy related to the community of Jews. Okay, so we, we have all of these things where the, where the angels were extremely important. And let me just give you two quotations here from some commentators to put this a little more into perspective here. Uh, Harold Kuhn wrote a book uh, and he said, one of the reasons why the angels had such emphasis was a political one. The subjugation of Israel to Greek and then to Roman authorities and the perceived weakness of leadership in temple courts led to a switch away from the temple and its power. The threat of cultural assimilation was also an important factor. The angels represented a future restoration of their status and free identity. So essentially what he said is we're looking at the angels to restore the Israel back to where it needed to be on the map. And another lady, Cecilia Wasson, says, During the last few centuries leading to the turn of the era, Angels took center stage in Jewish speculations about heavenly realities. At the same time, they are not alone in the supernatural world. At this time, Satan is seen as a powerful force who is controlling his evil angels and demons. Speculations about good and evil angelic powers form a part of cosmic dualism that was widely popular at this time. Like many Jewish documents, the Dead Sea Scrolls display considerable fascination with angels, okay? So there was a huge fascination with angels before Christ, during Christ, and after Christ. And the author is trying to address this just like he's trying to address the prophets here. And so how does the author address this? So now let's move to verse chapter five and read through uh, the end of the chapter here. It says, for to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, and today I have become your father? 
Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. And speaking of the angels, he said, he makes his angels winds and his servants flames of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, will last forever and ever. And righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says, in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will all wear out like a garment. You will roll them up like a robe, like a garment. They will be changed. But you remain the same and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Okay, so all of these different passages here, I want you guys to realize these are all Old Testament citations. Again, he's going back to their history and saying, look, Here's what you understand about the scriptures. And I'm trying to communicate to you that what you think about the angels is actually not a proper understanding that somehow they are going to restore you and save you. That was not what this was meant to be. All of this, again, was pointing forward to the coming Messiah, who is Jesus Christ. But let's look how he talks about each of these. So first off, he acknowledges that Christ is the Son of God. Right? We actually already kind of saw this with the prophet. But he's saying, look, the family lineage, there is God and there is Christ himself. And in a family, right, when the father passes away, when the mother passes away, the inheritance passes to the children. Right? So when Christian and I are gone, our children will inherit all of our property and will inherit all of our wealth. And he's saying, this is what Christ is to God. He is the Son of God and is entitled to the inheritance and the, the authority and the property and the wealth. All that belongs to God is being passed on to Christ. So in the scriptures, what we see a lot of times in like something like Genesis 5 or Matthew 1, where it said so-and-so begot so-and-so, and then that person begot him, and that person begot him. That's just God's way of saying, here was the father, and then he had a son, and here's who his son was. Okay? So it's a, it's a direct tie to actually family lineage and inheritance. And the second part of this lineage and inheritance, he calls him the first born. Again, in Jewish culture, the firstborn is the one that is, an, is able to inherit the authority and the power-making decision of the family, and he is the one that is entitled to the inheritance of the property. Because as the oldest, it was his job to care for the family and make decisions for the family. And so he's saying, look, Christ is the firstborn. He is the one that is inheriting my authority to make decisions. And remember when John tries to worship him? And they're like, no, 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 don't worship me. Because what he's saying is, the angels are not entitled to this inheritance. The angels are not entitled to this worship. 
That is reserved for Christ and Christ alone. And then the second thing that he has is he kind of interweaves these two ideas here. Again, he goes through and he says, let's again talk about these angels. He, He says, look, he makes the angels to be servants of wind or to be servants of flames of fire. What he's saying is, he says, his angels are mutable. God can make his angels to be whatever he wants them to be. So if he wants it to be an angel of wind, it'll be an angel of wind. If it wants it to be an angel of fire, it'll be an angel of fire. If he wants him to be an angel that would bring forth uh, crops from the ground, that's what the role of that angel will be. And then he says, but what about the, the, the son's throne? He said, Christ's throne will last forever. A kingdom of righteousness that will, that will be above his companions, referring to the angels at this point, who was then anointed with oil. And the anointing of oil, again, was a symbolic understanding of anointing the next king of Israel. He doesn't do that for the angels. And he says, you know, you were there when you laid the foundations of the earth. But even the foundations of the earth will perish. They will be like worn out garments. But he says of God and he says of Christ, he said, they will never change and they will never end. The sun is eternal. And he turns back to the angels and then he says to the angels, do you get to sit at the right hand of God? Do you get that special privilege? No, that's reserved for Christ. And I like how he ends it. He says, no, quite frankly, you are a ministering spirit sent to serve. And and I like, too, how when we get that sense, he says, you are sent to serve who? You're sent to serve the humans. So in a sense, what he's saying is these angels which you worship, which are actually worshiping Christ, are actually not designed to be worshipped, but are actually meant to serve you. They're actually lower than you, and you somehow have misplaced them and put the angels above where they're meant to be. So what do we get? We get that Christ is unchanging. Christ is immutable. Christ has been the same now and will be forever and ever. Right? We as humans are fickle. Are we not? We change with every whim of season and whatever feels good to us. And one moment we do this and the next moment we change our mind because it suits us better. That's who we are as as human beings. But he says Christ never changes. Nothing is ever going to change about the nature of who God is. And it is a nature and a character that is built on righteousness and justice. God has always done what is right. And he says also about the supremacy. Christ is always going to sit on the throne. The angels will never, ever have that position. Quite frankly, again, they are there to serve the will of God. And that ultimate supremacy, again, came at the cross when he died and shed his blood. And there at that moment, he took care of sin and death And we are told again in Revelation 20 that Satan and his uh, demons will be vanquished to the eternal flames of fire. So Christ is unchanging. Christ is always good. And Christ is always the authority of this world. So Hebrews 1 tells us that Christ is a better messenger. He's better than the prophets. 
He's better than the angels. And again, if he is a better messenger, he has a better message. And just to kind of reiterate what this message is, it's the same thing that Paul uses here in Colossians 1. He says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all of creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him holds all things together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through the blood shed on the cross. That is the better message. Christ is supreme, and through Christ, we have the reconciliation between God and man for our sins by the shedding of his blood. And one just final piece about all of this as we start to close this out. Back in verse 4 again, he says, So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited. So not only is Christ superior, but the name alone of Christ is superior. You know, in the Roman world, when a, when a, a Roman boy turned about 14, 15, or 16, his family would have a formal naming ceremony where he would have his name, but then he would take on the rest of his family's name. And when that formal ceremony happened, what that meant was he has now come of age to obtain the inheritance of his family. That he has now come of age to be entitled to the authority and the power and the property and all that goes with it of his father. So names are a really big deal. Because names are an identity of who we are. It communicates something of our past. And our names are going to communicate something about our futures. And so when he says Christ's name is superior, I go to Philippians chapter 2 there. He says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the name of Christ, every knee will bow. Because when you mention the name of Jesus Christ, the name alone carries all of that weight of the world. All of that power and all of that authority and all of that redemption is all wrapped up in the very name of Jesus Christ. And so as we go through the book of Hebrews, that's again what he's trying to communicate. That this is the message that is better than anything else that is out there. So for us, whatever it may be, maybe you are wrestling 
with the various different gods and goddesses that exist in this world. Maybe you're wrestling with the different religions that exist and still wondering, is this the one true God? Maybe instead what you've done is you, 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 you've put some person in your life up on a pedestal and you said, if I could only be like them, Maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a family member, maybe it's some superstar in the world of Hollywood. Maybe what you've done instead is that you've taken this pot of money and you've put it there on the pedestal of Christ and said, this is what I'm going to focus my life on. Maybe it's not money, maybe it's good works that you've put there and said, if I just do enough. Whatever, whatever achievement you have, whatever trophy that you hang on to, whatever medal that you hang around your neck, that you pride yourself on, that you hope is going to get you into heaven, the authors of Hebrews here is saying, there is nothing better than the message of Jesus Christ. And so if we are going to bow in this world, the only thing that we should bow a knee to is to the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, as we've set up going through your word here, Lord, this is just the beginning of trying to have us understand why we commit. Lord, you spoke in all kinds of ways. Lord, you, you spoke through creation. You spoke through dreams and visions. You spoke through your prophets. You, you spoke through the laying it upon our hearts, Lord, and our, our own moral conscience that you exist. Why, Lord, you, you spoke through a donkey in Scripture. And sometimes when you spoke, God, it was a thunderous voice. And sometimes when you spoke, it was a whisper as you spoke to Elijah. But, Lord, what you've said to us is the way that you speak now is through your Son, Jesus Christ. And, Lord... There is no other message that's coming. There is no other messenger that's coming. Because this is the final revealed word of God to us. That this is the best message that we can ever have in this world. That you died because you loved us. And you died for our sins. Amen.